And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. The passage that I just read uh, a moment ago is a, a poignant account of a person's inner conflict with himself. One part pulling one way and another part pulling another direction. And the conflict is real and it is intense. For perhaps as long as the church has known this text, however, interpreters have disagreed as to whether the person described as a Christian or a non-Christian. See, even Emory Grace can't make up her mind. One side maintains that the person is too much in bondage to sin to be a believer, whereas the other side says that the person has too much love for the things of God and too much hatred of sin to be an unbeliever. Now, obviously, it's an important matter to determine which sort of person Paul is talking about before we ever try to actually interpret the passage. It's also of some importance to determine whether um, Paul's first-person singular that he uses many times in this passage, whether he's referring to himself or whether that's simply a literary device uh, so that he can identify more personally with his readers. So is Paul speaking of himself? And if he is, is he talking about before or after his conversion? I'm just going to give you a quick breakdown of, of, of the different sides. Those who believe that Paul is speaking about an unbeliever here, they point out that he describes this person as being of the flesh, sold under sin. That's verse 14. As having nothing good dwelling in him. That's verse 18. And as of a wretched man trapped in a body of death. That's verse 24. And those do sound pretty negative, don't they? So it's argued, how could such a person correspond to the Christian that Paul has already described in chapter 6. Uh, this person has died to sin. That's verse 2. Uh, he has, uh, sees himself as uh, being his old self crucified and no longer being enslaved to sin. That's verse 6. Uh, as being freed from sin. Verse 7, 18 and 22. As considering himself dead to sin. That's verse 11 and as being obedient to the heart, or from the heart, to God's Word. That's verse 17. So that's kind of their argument. There's just too much sin here to be a believer. Those who contend that Paul is speaking about a believer in chapter 7 point out that this person desires to obey God's law and hates doing what is evil. That's verses 15, 19, and 21. That he is actually humble before God, realizing that nothing good dwells in his humanness. That's verse 18. And that he, that he sees sin in him, but that's not all that is in him. Uh, he gives thanks to Jesus Christ as his Lord and serves him with his mind. That's verse 25. The apostle has already established that none of those things characterize the unsaved. The unbeliever not only hates God's truth and righteousness and suppresses it, he also willfully rejects the natural evidence of God. Neither does he honor or give thanks to God. And he's totally dominated by sin so that he arrogantly disobeys God's law and it encourages others to do the same. Now, that's just a synopsis of the last half of chapter 1 of Romans when he's talking about those who don't know Christ or unbelievers. In Romans 6, Paul began his discussion of sanctification by focusing on the believer as a new creation. Um, 
The emphasis is therefore on the holiness and the righteousness of the believer, both imputed and imparted. And for the reasons given in that previous paragraph, as well as for other reasons that I'm going to mention as we move along, I believe that in chapter 7, the apostle is still talking about the believer. Here, however, the focus is on the conflict that the believer continues to have with sin. Now, we saw conflict all the way back in chapter 6. Paul indicates that believers still must continually do battle with sin in their lives. He admonishes them back in chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Now, some interpreters believe that chapter 7 describes the carnal or what we might call fleshly Christian, one who is living on a very low level of spirituality. Some suggest that this person is a frustrated, legalistic Christian who attempts in his own power to please God by trying to live up to the Mosaic law. But the attitude expressed there in chapter 7 is not typical of what we would call legalists. Uh, They tend to be self-satisfied with their fulfillment of the law. Do you remember the Pharisee? Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. That's the lost. All right. Um, Most people are attracted to legalism because it offers the prospect of living up to God's standards by your own power, under your own power. It seems that Paul here is describing the most spiritual and mature of Christians who the more they honestly measure themselves against God's standards of righteousness, the more they realize how much they fall short. The closer we get to God, the more we see our own sin. It's the immature, fleshly, and legalistic person who tends to live under the illusion that he is spiritual and that he measures up well to God's standards. The level of spiritual insight, brokenness, contrition, and humility uh, that characterize this person depicted in chapter 7, those are the marks of a spiritual and mature believer who before God has no trust in his own goodness and achievements. It also seems as one would naturally suppose from the use of the first person singular, He uses it 46 times from verse 7 to verse 25. It kind of makes sense that Paul is actually speaking of himself. And not only is he the subject of this passage, but it is the mature and the spiritually seasoned apostle that is portrayed. Only a Christian at the height of spiritual maturity would either experience or even be concerned about such deep struggles of heart and mind and conscience. The more clearly and completely he saw God's holiness and goodness, the more Paul recognized and grieved over his own sinfulness. Paul reflects the same humility uh, many places in his other writings. In his first letter to the church of Corinth, he confessed, I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That's from 1 Corinthians 15. To the Ephesian believers, he spoke of himself as the very least of all saints. To Timothy, he marveled that the Lord considered him faithful, putting him into service, and refers to himself as the foremost 
of sinners. He knew and confessed that whatever he was in Christ was fully due to the grace of God and nothing else. Only a new creation in Christ lives with such tension of sin against righteousness. And that's because only a Christian has the divine nature of God within them. Because he is no longer in Adam, but now in Christ, he possesses that spirit-given desire to be conformed to Christ's own image and to be made perfect in righteousness. But sin still clings to his humanness, although in his inner being he hates and despises it. He has passed then from darkness to light. He now shares in Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and eternal life. But as he grows in Christ-likeness, he also becomes more and more aware of the continued presence and power of indwelling sin, which he loathes and longs to be rid of. The person depicted in Romans 7 has a deep awareness of his own sin and an equally deep desire to please the Lord in all things. And only a mature Christian could be so characterized. The spiritual believer is sensitive to sin because he knows it grieves the Holy Spirit, because it dishonors God, because sin keeps his prayers from being answered, because sin makes his life spiritually powerless. The spiritual believer is sensitive to sin because it causes good things from God to be withheld. Because it robs him of the joy of his salvation. Because it inhibits spiritual growth. Because it brings chastisement from the Lord. Can I get an amen? And because it prevents his being a fit vessel for the Lord to use. Well, starting in verse 14 and continuing throughout the rest of the chapter, he uses the present tense in exclusively in reference to himself. Now, that, uh, that abrupt, obvious, and cons uh, consistent change of tenses strongly supports the idea that in verses 14 through 25, Paul is describing his life as a Christian. Now, beginning in 14, there's also an obvious change in the subject's circumstances in relation to sin. In verses 7 through 13, Paul speaks of sin as deceiving him and slaying him. We talked about the deceit uh, of sin just last week. He gives the picture of being at sin's mercy and helpless to extricate him himself from its deadly grip. But in verses 14 through 25, he speaks of a conscious and determined battle against sin, which is still a powerful enemy, but is no longer his master. Now in the latter part of the chapter, Paul also continues to defend the righteousness of God's law. He rejoices in the benefits of God's law. Uh, and, and even though it cannot save him, uh, it nevertheless continues to reveal and to convict of sin, just as it did before salvation. As long as a believer remains on this earth in his mortal and corrupted body, the law will continue to be a spiritual ally because it will, will reveal your sin, which you will grow to hate. Well, just kind of the overall theme this morning is the obedient and spirit-filled believer greatly values and honors all of the moral and spiritual commandments of God. Let's pray. Father, again, we just ask for your assistance.
Uh, Lord, as, as Paul uh, just uh, shares his struggle, uh, much of it we can, we can uh, agree with. We understand. Uh, we have been through that or are going through that. I pray that you would continue to teach us and, and just lead us into the truth by your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul is still teaching here on the broader subject of justification by grace through faith. He's already established that justification results in the believer's security. That's what we saw back in chapter 5. His holiness, that's what we saw in chapter 6. And his freedom from bondage to the law, that's verse, chapter 7, the first six verses. Now to that list of benefits, the apostle now adds sensitivity to and hatred of sin. In verses 14 through 25, Paul gives a series of laments about his spiritual predicament and his difficulties. The first three laments, they follow the exact same pattern. Paul first describes the spiritual condition he's lamenting, then he gives proof of its reality, and finally he reveals the source of the problem. There's a final lament in verses 24 and 25, and that includes a beautiful exaltation of gratitude to God for His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, it's because of His gracious sacrifice that believers in Him are no longer under condemnation in spite of the lingering power of sin. We're going to see that when we get to chapter 8, right? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, let's take a look at this first lament. This is verses 14 through 17. Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. So let's take a look at the condition. Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage of sin. To sin. That's verse 14. Now that conjunction for, that carries the idea of because. It indicates that Paul is not introducing a new subject, but is giving a defense of what he has just said. He begins by uh, again, for affirming that the law is not the problem. The law is spiritual. The law is good. Salvation by grace through faith does not replace or devalue the law. I mean, you've got to understand that the law was never given as a means of salvation. Hebrews 11 and, and many other passages of Scripture make clear that the only means of salvation has always been the provision and the power of God's grace working through the channel of man's faith. And Paul continues, But I am still of the flesh. In other words, I'm still earthbound. I'm still mortal. It's important to note that the apostle doesn't say that he is still in the flesh, but that he is of the flesh. He's already explained that believers are no longer in the flesh. That's verse 5. No longer bound by and enslaved to sinfulness as they once were. The idea is that although believers are still in the flesh, <laughs> the flesh is still in them. In his first letter to the church of Corinth, Paul describes the Christians there as men of flesh, babes in Christ. 
Even as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul possesses a remnant of the sinfulness that characterizes all human beings, including those who in Christ are saved from its total mastery and condemnation. Every well-taught and honest Christian is aware that his life falls far short of God's perfect standard of righteousness and that he falls back into sin uh, with disturbing frequency. He's no longer his form of his former father, the devil. He no longer loves the world. He is no longer sin's slave. But he is still subject to its deceit. He's still attracted by many of its allurements. Yet the Christian cannot be happy with his sin because it's contrary to his new nature. Because he knows that it grieves the Lord as, as well as his own conscience. Back in Psalm 51, after being confronted by Nathan, David uh, wrote Psalm 51, which is a psalm of repentance. Here's the first three verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Now this is important, I'm going to add it here. Verse 4 says, let me think, For against you and you alone have I sinned. (laughs) Sin is so wretched, so powerful, that even in a redeemed person, it hangs on, it contaminates his living, it frustrates his inner desire to obey God to the fullest. Well, let's take a look at the proof. This is verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not, I do, not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul found himself doing things he didn't approve of. Now, it's not that he was unable to do a particular good thing, but when he saw the fullness and the grandeur of God's law, he wasn't able to measure up to it completely. It wasn't that he could never accomplish anything good at all, nor that he could never faithfully obey God. Rather, he was, an express, he was expressing an inner turmoil of the most profound kind, of sincerely desiring in his heart to fulfill the Spirit as well as the letter of the law, but realizing that he was unable to live up to the Lord's perfect standards, and even his own heart's desires. It wasn't Paul's conscience that was bothering him because of some unforgiven sin or selfish reluctance to follow the Lord. It was his inner man, recreated in the likeness of Christ and indwelt by Christ's Spirit, that now could see something of the true holiness and goodness and glory of God's law. He was grieved at his least infraction or falling short of it. In glaring contrast to his pre-conversion self-satisfaction in thinking that he was blameless before God concerning the law, Paul now realized how wretchedly short of God's perfect law he lived, even as a spirit-indwelt believer and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That spirit of humble contrition, that's a mark of every spiritual disciple of Christ who cries out, Lord, I can't be all that you want me to be. 
I am unable to fulfill your perfect and holy and glorious law. In great frustration and sorrow, uh, we confess with Paul, for I do not do what I want. Well, let's look at the source, that's C. Paul says, if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. Paul now deals with the reason, the source of his inability to perfectly fulfill the law. And he begins by staunchly defending the divine standard. Whatever the reason for my doing the very thing I do not wish to do, he says, it's not the law's fault. The law is good, holy, and righteous. He says, I agree with the law in every detail. My new self, the, the, the new creation that placed God's incorruptible and eternal seed within me is wholeheartedly confessing that the law is good. In my redeemed being, I sincerely long to honor the law and to fulfill it perfectly. That's what Paul is thinking. Well, every true Christian has in his heart a sense of the moral excellence of God's law. And the more mature he becomes in Christ, the more fully he perceives, perceives and lauds the law's goodness, its holiness, its glory. What then is the problem? What is the source of, of Paul's failure to live up to God's standards and his own desires? No longer am I the one doing it, Paul explains, but sin which indwells me. Now, Paul is not trying to escape personal responsibility here. He's not mixing the pure gospel with the Greek philosophical dualism that became Gnosticism that plagued the early church. You see, there had been a radical change in his life, as there has been a radical change in the life of every Christian. He uses that word, no longer. It's a negative adverb of time. It indicates a complete and permanent change. Paul's new I, the new inner self, no longer approves of the sin that still clings to him through the flesh. Before his conversion... His inner self approved of the sin in his, that he committed, but now his completely new inner self strongly disapproves. After salvation, sin, kind of like a, a, a deposed and exiled ruler, no longer reigns in a person's life, but it does manage to survive. In this life, Christians are somewhat like an unskilled artist who beholds a beautiful scene that he wants to paint. I had that feeling yesterday afternoon. I was out on the water, you know, and we were out there 30 minutes after sundown. But those 15 minutes before sundown and then the sun touching and then afterwards, I mean, you just sit there and marvel. Uh, my son's favorite thing says, can't do this on Xbox. He's talking about just enjoying God's creation. It is crazy good. But suppose I wanted to paint that scene. So I get me a canvas. I get the paint. Is it going to look like that? Nope. Why? Is the fault with the scene? No, the scene's perfect. Is the fault with the, the canvas or the paint or the brushes? No, where's the fault? It's with me because I, I, don't, I don't have that ability. That's what it's like to be a Christian. That's why we need to ask the master painter, 
Jesus Christ, to place His hand over ours in order to paint the strokes that independent of Him, we could never produce. Jesus said, apart from me, did I just die again? For a second, it came back, okay. The only way that we can live victorious, victoriously is to walk by Christ's own Spirit and in His power in order to not carry out the desires of the flesh. And we're going to spend a lot more time over the next week or two talking about this whole idea. But that's, that's, that's what we've got today. We'll look at the, the next laments and what have you, and they're, they're very similar. Paul is struggling with what is going on in him. I love the Lord. I love His law. But whoa, I fall woefully short. Now, is that anything unusual? Anytime we see any person coming in contact with the holiness of God, what does it do? It slays them. It knocks them out. Over and over again, we see it. Paul is doing that now. He understands the beauty of God's law. He understands the goodness and the righteousness and he wants to fulfill it. That's the, that's the spirit within him reaching out and saying, yes, this is glorious. Do it. <laughs> and something he says, he goes, nope. <laughs> and he says it's a sin that dwells in our flesh. It's something that we're going to be dealing with as long as we are in these bodies. Uh, yesterday we had the memorial service for Miss Eileen Debish. Eileen loved the Lord. She was ready to go. Guess what? She's no longer dealing with that aspect of Christianity. She is now, I don't know, an, in, an, in the unmediated presence of Christ and God the Father. She's doing just fine. One day we'll be there, but until we die or Jesus comes again, we're going to struggle. Okay? Just understand that. Let, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank You again just for the reality of Your Word, the truth that uh, it, it gives us uh, continuously, not only about You, but about ourselves, about, for believers, the inner struggle. We thank You for that. Uh, God, it, it's, a, it's a form of assurance uh, to know that we struggle with sin. Because unbelievers at large, they do not struggle with sin. God, You are good. Um, you are gracious. Speak to our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe you're sitting out there this morning and you understand that, hey, yeah, I really don't struggle with sin. Oh, I go, uh, you know, but life moves on. No big deal. Maybe you've never met the Lord Jesus. Okay, maybe you're out there and you have never given your life to Him. Just like we talked about with Vicki this morning for the baptism, she has followed Christ. He is her Lord. He is tr she is trusting Him. If you've never done that, if you never came to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, I encourage you to do that today. The struggle will begin then with sin. But if the, if the Lord is speaking to you and saying, hey, you need to listen up, don't run from that. Run to it. That's God through His Holy Spirit just kind of knocking on your door saying, hey, you need to listen. If you're confused, you need some questions answered, come to me. Come to Tyler. Come to a Christian that you trust and let them share God's Word with you. But if God is speaking to you in that way this morning, I encourage you to come. Share it with me. We'll spend some time in the Word and I'll show you what... The Word says about coming to know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, this, this, this sermon kind of works two ways. It does bring a little bit of assurance to, to know that we do struggle with sin. How many have ever been really frustrated with sin in your life to the point you go, Am I even saved? 
If you're not raving your hands, you haven't struggled much. Yeah. Hey, that's a sign that you are saved. Outside of that Holy Spirit dwelling in you, the unbeliever, they don't care. It doesn't bother them like it does a believer. If you're struggling with sin, praise God. Ask Him to forgive you, right? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do that every day. Stay close to Him. But understand, there's a struggle, and it's okay. Continue the fight. Keep the faith, as Paul says. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.